Welcome to Brain Events. We are delighted to be rejoined by John Martin Fisher. In our last discussion with him, we spoke about free will and moral responsibility. And today we're going to be talking about near-death experiences. John, would you like to start with a real case? Yes. And uh, forgive me for reading a little bit, but I'm reading from Avon Alexander's very, very popular, uh, widely read book. It's called Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. Avon Alexander is a neurosurgeon wrote about his near-death experience. And the book itself has uh, sold more than 3 million copies. So very successful, a lot more copies than my near-death experience book, and unfortunately. In any case, I'm just going to read, if you'll excuse me a little bit. He describes starting in a dark, very scary, unpleasant place, but then he moves toward a light. And he said, then I heard a new sound, a living sound, like the richest, most complex, most beautiful piece of music you've ever heard. Growing in volume as a pure white light descended, it obliterated the monotonous mechanical pounding that seemingly for eons had been my only companion up until then. The light got closer and closer, spinning around and around and generating those filaments of pure white light that I saw were tinged here and there with hints of gold. Then at the very center of the light, something else appeared. I focused my awareness hard, trying to figure out what it was. I began to move up fast. There was a whooshing sound, and in a flash I went through the opening and found myself in a completely new world, the strangest, most beautiful world I'd ever seen. Brilliant, vibrant, ecstatic, stunning. I could heap on one adjective after another to describe what this world looked and felt like, but they'd all fall short. I felt like I was being born, not reborn or born again, just born. So he then describes flying on the wings of a butterfly. As he says, I was flying, passing over trees and fields, streams and waterfalls, and here and there, people. The people sang and danced around in circles. Then he goes on. They wore simple yet beautiful clothes. And it seemed to me that the colors of these clothes had the same kind of living warmth as the trees and the flowers that bloomed and blossomed in the countryside around them. A beautiful, incredible dream world. Though I didn't know where I was or even what I was, I was absolutely sure of one thing. This place I'd suddenly found myself in was completely real. And he goes on, he has a whole chapter called the ultra real, more real than the desk in front of him as he was writing. So that's just a part of a description uh, of his near death experience. And so I, I thought I would just start with that story. It's just an excerpt, believe it or not. <laughs> um, but this kind of story is something that fascinates people and people find compelling in part because. It's written up by and was putatively experienced by a skeptic, a, a scientist, someone who in advance didn't have religious beliefs or didn't have strong spiritual beliefs, but was changed via this experience. So traditionally, this would be Jason's turn to step in, but unfortunately, he's not feeling very well. I'm hoping that he's not having a near-death experience as we speak, um, and that he'll be back with us next week. But... I wonder about this. So it seems like when people have a moment like this in their lives, that's so pivotal, that's so memorable, that's so vivid, that it can change 
the entire fabric of their belief system. As you say, this is someone who started off a skeptic and then thought, well, it feels like I've experienced an afterlife, that there's some other world out there and that that world is real, but I'm assuming non-material in some way, that they think that their soul maybe is what went and visited this world, that it wasn't their physical body. Now, I think it'd be useful for us to try and set the landscape as richly as we can. So this is one account. First of all, what do other accounts look like? Do we see similar kinds of experiences from people who've been in this situation? Yes, there, there are patterns to the experiences. It's quite striking patterns across cultures and societies and actually across time. And that's one of the reasons why I think people take them seriously and I take them seriously. Some people dismiss them. But if you're careful about reading the stories and analyzing them, you'll see that there are striking similarities and patterns. And now, but there are also differences. Some of those differences may be an out emerging from different people's religious beliefs or their culture, their antecedent level of spirituality and their expectations. So there are specific differences and just their personal idiosyncrasies. Abe and Alexander had always been interested in flying and he was in fact a pilot. And so his experience involved being on the wings of a butterfly and flying over and seeing people below. And many people in Western cultures see what they describe as a light at the end of a tunnel. Uh, and he talks about being in the darkness and ascending toward a light. And in Western cultures, pretty much everyone there, there's this trope that they're to the effect that there's always light at the end of the tunnel. It's a trope expressing hope, hope in a, sometimes a very dire and bad situation. But in Japan, they, they have a different story or one story that comforts them in the thought that they're getting older and perhaps nearing death. They talk about the calming and rewarding effect of buying a plot of land and tending it, making it a rock garden, tending it with their close friends and family. And in some near-death experiences in Japan, they see rock gardens. They don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. So there are differences along with the similarities. And going back to Abe and Alexander as well, I don't know of any other that involve flying on the wings of a butterfly, but I'd say, let's put it this way. There are many characteristics that you find in many near-death experiences. You don't find these characteristics in all of them. So it's kind of like a syndrome or what Wittgenstein called a family resemblance notion, but some of those characteristics are an out-of-body experience, feeling as if you're floating above your body or you're departing the perspective of your body. As uh, Mark said, perhaps your soul has separated from the body. In any case, you have an out-of-body experience. And then often you are guided on a journey from the dark toward a light. You're guided by a trusting uh, mentor, a trusted mentor, someone, perhaps a religious figure, perhaps a deceased loved one whom you trust, who, who is your guide in this journey. And often you go toward a, a guarded realm, a, a realm that's guarded by a wall or, uh, a river or literally a fence or a gate. Um, 
my view is, is that the other, the heaven or the other realm is a gated community. Uh, it's, it's a traveling toward a gated community, you could say. And often there is a life review as part of this voyage or this um, experience, near-death experience. And often the colors are extremely vivid and it's not incoherent. There's a coherent narrative with vivid colors. And in that way, um, different from dreams, you know how a dream can jump around and it's not necessarily cohesive. Near-death experiences tend to be narratives with, with an arc and uh, they tend to be cohesive. So these are patterns that you see. Another famous near-death experience that's been written up and the book has sold again, millions of copies. It's about a young boy's near-death experience. Colton Burpo is the young boy's name and his father was Todd Burpo. Todd Burpo wrote up this experience and this time the young boy had the experience of meeting Jesus and some of the apostles and then returning, having had this kind of religious experience. So that's very different from, in details, from Abe and Alexander's experience, but there are similarities as well. So I wonder if we had to compare this kind of experience to other altered states, what the similarities and differences are. So we could have ordinary dreams, uh, lucid dreams, let's say deep meditative states, and then maybe drug-induced hallucinations. Where would these fit alongside these other kinds of phenomena? I think they're all arguably spiritual experiences. I'm not sure about dreams, but they are spiritual experiences. And William James uh, and others have cataloged properties, general properties of mystical or spiritual experiences, right? They can be induced in different ways, perhaps by meditation or prayer or psychedelic hallucinogenic drugs or a near-death experience, but they all have certain properties. One is a sense of being in contact with some being or some power greater than oneself. Another is a sense of the unity of the world or the, that the, the differences that we experience in the world are in some way constructed by us and imposed on the world. But uh, when one reflects carefully enough, one sees that everything is undifferentiated and part of one. There's also uh, what James called a noetic quality to our experiences, that is that it seems ultra real in Aben Alexander's term. It's, it involves usually a sense of peace and serenity, a total immersion in the now, an experience of the now without regard to the past or the future. So those are some of the, the features of spiritual or mystical experiences in general and near-death experiences, of course, have many of those features. And interestingly, often or sometimes experiences induced by hallucinogens like LSD have strikingly similar characteristics, amazingly similar characteristics. An out-of-body experience, a, a journey toward a spiritual awakening and all sorts of similar characteristics. And perhaps it's not totally accidental that those experiences are called trips. I think of near-death experiences as trips or voyages. So yes, Mark, you're right that there is a whole class of 
what might be called mystical or spiritual experiences with similar properties and near-death experiences are right up there with those other spiritual experiences. So when we use the term spiritual, often people, I think, summon up supernatural in their mind. In other words, they think of something that is beyond the body, something that involves an actual other realm. In other words, when that trip happens, it is not merely within your brain. It is to a place like heaven or to an afterlife. Do you mean spiritual in that sense, or do you mean it in some sense that could be converted to the natural? I believe that it can be converted into the natural or interpreted in a naturalistic way. I agree that most, many of the interpretations in the popular literature and discussion of near-death experiences, and even in the more scholarly analyses of near-death experiences, although most of them are not the most rigorous uh, scholarly analyses, although there are some very respectable scholars and researchers who work on NDEs, but almost all of them interpret them as uh, spiritual in the sense of religious or involving a voyage by a non-physical mind or a soul toward and maybe even into a heavenly or otherworldly realm. I do not, and what part of my work, one thing that makes it somewhat unique is that I deny that there's evidence for that kind of interpretation. The experiences as they're rec reported do not give evidence or good evidence for the supernatural interpretation, but we can understand, we, we don't, I don't dismiss them. I think they're still deeply meaningful, but I want to, want to understand the spirituality, not in a religious sense, but in a naturalistic sense. So I think that you can accept that the experiences are sincerely experienced, that someone can believe that they have gone to another realm, and they could be mistaken about uh, the nature of the experience. Uh, and also, as you say, it could be an incredibly meaningful experience in the sense that it's a profound moment in their life, one that they look back on that maybe propels them to make different changes in their lives. Could you tell us a, a little bit about that meaning impact that it's had for people? Yeah, they are often deeply transformational. There's a Dutch cardiologist named Pim Van Lommel who's done longitudinal studies of people who've had near-death experiences and others have also noted these changes. So. First, people experience, in general, less death anxiety and greater pro-social attitudes and behaviors or more sensitivity to the feelings and interests of others. Often, they're more concerned with moral issues like justice. I suppose those are the main differences, especially the lesser death anxiety and the greater orientation towards spirituality, not necessarily religion, more of being at peace with the world. Now, I should point out that one thing that's interesting and we haven't yet discussed and often gets ignored in the literature is that there are negative near-death experiences as well. And I don't know if people who have negative experiences have less death anxiety. If they have an, a very negative, painful, distressing uh, near-death experience, that might teach them that they have to change their ways in certain respects and maybe 
in that way, they think of it as a, a wake-up call, a red flag or a helpful wake-up call. But I don't know if the people who have these negative experiences have the same kinds of uh, peaceful transformations. They do often have transformations, though. It sometimes motivates them to uh, change their behavior. So Thad Metz has a, an encounter on meaning which he thinks is rooted in three values of truth, beauty, and goodness. And he thinks that you should be directing your life towards things that pursue that and with the correct attitude. So it's not sufficient just to pursue truth by engaging in scientific endeavors. One has to do it with a positive attitude. Similarly, if you think about a nurse who spends her time toiling after the sick, but hates every moment of it, it wouldn't become meaningful even if you're doing something good. What I wonder about here is if the person sincerely believes that they've gone through a supernatural experience, and it so turns out that they're mistaken in this regard, that it can be cashed out in purely natural terms, that we can understand that through physical processes, that we can come up with a good account that explains why they had the experience that they had, whether that necessarily undermines the meaningfulness of the experience because it is built upon a false foundation. Interesting. So there are a lot of different elements of that, that question. I would perhaps distinguish the question of the meaningfulness of the life of an NDE or let's say someone who experiences, uh, this, or has a near death experience and it's central to their lives. They transform their lives in virtue of it, learning from it. And I would distinguish the meaningfulness of their lives from the meaningfulness of the experience or the meaning of the experience. I think you can have a very meaningful life, and, but based on an illusion, as long as your whole life is not an illusion. I think that if you are a brain in a vat, <laughs> to invoke a term that, with which you're familiar, or you're, you're in Plato's cave, or you are being systematically diluted, like in Robert Nozick's experience machine, I believe you can't lead a meaningful life under those circumstances, because I agree with Thaddeus Metz that the aiming for truth and perhaps being in contact with the external world in, as it were, truthful ways, that's a necessary condition for leading a meaningful life. People disagree. David Chalmers has a new book. Uh, it's coming out any, any month now, if it's not out already in which he discusses these issues and he argues you could have a meaningful life if you were in the experience machine or virtual reality. I disagree with that. So I agree with Metz about that. But I think though that you could have a particular experience in which you are deluded or the, the contents of the experience as they are presented to you turn out literally to be false. And that can spur you to change your life and to live in ways that enhance its meaning where you are in contact with reality. So, yeah, I, I think also that the meaning of the experience may be separated from its meaningfulness. So its meaning is a certain content, whereas meaningfulness is more of a normative notion. And something can have a meaning without its being normatively valenced or especially positive. 
Uh, let me also mention, I don't know if that answered the question or just avoided it in a helpful way or just simply avoided it. But when you think about meaning in life, I think ultimately at some level, it's about making important or objectively meaningful connections. I think the notion of connection is important at a certain abstract level, not just connection to any old thing. I mean, Sisyphus was connected to his rock, but I think what we want is a connection to something objectively meaningful, like the ongoing activities of science or literature, or perhaps a God or otherworldly being, if you are religious. And I think perhaps that the criteria that Metz invokes truth, beauty, goodness, they may be less deep and certainly they're less abstract than the idea of making a connection of objective value. And maybe you could systematize those three conditions by invoking this more general idea. Um, so that's kind of the way I would approach it. So I suppose there's always an ambiguity when people talk about something being meaningful. And maybe I can try and tease that out a little bit. It seems like if you ask someone who went through an NDE, was that a meaningful experience? Their answer will be yes. What they, they might mean various things. One is that it's a landmark watershed moment in their lives, partly because it's connected to almost dying. In other words, almost dying is a landmark moment. You didn't die and you continue to survive. And maybe you're marked by it in some kind of way, a surgery, an accident or whatever it is. And that it was accompanied by this very vivid experience, as you say, that has quite interesting content in it, like flying or meeting a deity or getting a message, and that would be a landmark. And then, as you say, it could also drive you to change your life. So in the first case that you give, you have someone who's skeptical. I imagine they might be an atheist, they might be a materialist, and they have this experience, and then their worldview shifts. But it could be that, that what the change does is it makes your life less meaningful. So for example, let's say, assume for the sake of argument that there is no afterlife, there is no God, could be mistaken about this, but let's assume it for the sake of argument. And someone who was an atheist and believed what was true has this pivotal moment in their life. And then they'd become very religious. And then they go and spend the enormous amount of their time in uh, a religious place, reading religious texts, believing in an afterlife, all falsely. Um, and to my mind, that would mean that they have engaged in something that is not meaningful, at least on the truth criteria. It might be that they get some other stuff haphazardly. So the place that you worship in is a very beautiful mosque, that you end up doing a lot of good deeds because you're now associated with a faith that embraces charity. And so along the way, it's made you do these other things, but you might have also done it for the wrong reason because you think, well, this is what the deity wants of me, even though there is no deity. And so there's a concern that this could all be very significant and life-changing, but not necessarily meaningful in the normative sense. I agree. I think that's right. And you can imagine someone having a spiritual experience or, and specifically a near-death experience that causes them just to sit on the couch for the rest of their lives or contemplating their navels or otherwise becoming disengaged and not seeking to connect with something greater than themselves or making an objectively uh, valuable connection. So you could have a meaningful experience that leads to a less meaningful life. I agree. I agree. Or diminishes what we might call the meaning in life. That can happen. I would 
distinguish between a normative and a non-normative notion of uh, meaningful, or at least I think more uh, precisely, a moral versus a, a non-moral notion of meaningful. So if you think about this, someone might say the rings of those that tree is meaningful. It means or implies that the tree is a certain number of years old. So there are objects or activities that can be meaningful, but not necessarily in a moral way. But there's another sense in which uh, we use the term meaningful to indicate something moral. The, the fact that he kept his promise was really meaningful. He made a statement that's important and morally positive. So there are times when we use the term meaningful for just has a meaning, which is maybe totally non-moral. But there are other times when we use it as not just normatively, but morally infused or morally significant notion. And so I don't think we should confuse them or conflate them. And so my own view is Hitler led a meaningful life. He led a meaningful life, but not in the morally uh, positive way. He led a meaningful life because he did make connections. Now, in other words, he, he made a mark on history. He, he had associations with a number of different people. He worked as a team to do horrible things. He did all sorts of things that ordinarily would be part of leading a meaningful life in the non-moral sense. Now, did he do things of objective value? Did he make connections with things of objective value? Now, that's a little trickier. I think there's a usage, though, of the term meaningfulness in which he did. So the florid and horrible, horrid particulars of what he did, they're ghastly, they're totally immoral. There's no question about that. But if you define them more abstractly as making a mark on history, working as a colleague or as a member of a team to affect significant changes. All of those things, making a connection with the history of military conflict, all of these things make for a meaningful life, but not in the morally positive sense. So I do want to distinguish different uses of the term meaningful. I think that's very useful. When Thad Metz was was writing his book, Meaning in Life, we were in seminars together and I, I gave that example and took very much the line that you've taken. And I mentioned in the acknowledgements of the book, and I put it down to, to us taking different views on that topic. Thad takes the view that Hitler's life could not be meaningful because it was normatively good. And I think there's this equivocation around meaningful in the sense of mark on history significance and these objective list criteria. This question about you know, whether we should have a supernatural account or a natural account. One of the features of these near-death experiences is that it seems that there are things that are unexplainable that the person going through experience experiences. So I think in your book, you give an example of someone who is in a, I think they're, they're on an operating table, their brain functions cease to, cease to happen, and afterwards report conversations that had occurred during that time, and their conversations are then externally confirmed. How do we make sense of an example like that? Yes, the, this strikes people as remarkable, and, and many of the 
proponents of a supernatural interpretation of near-death experiences highlight these reports that turn out to be veridical. They're, they're true reports of things, events, uh, that apparently couldn't have been, the information couldn't have been got by a normal physical means. So they're apparently non-physical, veridical reports. Now, there are hundreds and perhaps thousands of reports like this that are written up in the literature. And when people uh, read them or when they report them, they think it's just totally remarkable. And it must show that we have, again, not just apparently, but actually non-physical ways of getting this information, uh, which would suggest again, that the mind or the soul separates from the body gets the data. What I believe is that typically there is an alternative explanation of, of the fact that the individuals got this true information or made a veridical and accurate report. And in the case, one, one thing that's important is that even in a case where someone is being uh, anesthetized or is anesthetized but not totally unconscious or during the time in which their brain is ramping up after they were anesthetized, they can soak up information and later they're able to uh, pull it out as it were. They might not have been aware or fully conscious when the information was acquired, but there are ways of acquiring information when we are only partly conscious. Now, maybe the woman who was on the operating table, whose brain was actually cooled to a certain uh, point, maybe she did acquire the relevant information when she was partially conscious. Or, you know, sometimes people get information before they're uh, anesthetized or after they're anesthetized. And it seems to them when they report it sincerely that they didn't, they, they never remember getting this information when they were conscious, but maybe that's the way it was. And that's just a template for explaining these phenomena. There's a well-known case in the literature of someone who, when, when he awakened from uh, anesthesia, reported that his glasses were in the desk drawer near his bed and they were put there during the time in which she was unconscious and so it was remarkable that he was able to report their location but then again it comes out that the nurses almost always put people's glasses there and he he would have seen perhaps other people being prepared for anesthesia or unconscious whose stuff is put in that sort of drawer. Or maybe as he was ramping up to consciousness, he saw some, a nurse put those uh, glasses in someone else's drawer uh, cabinet. So there are always alternative ways of explaining the apparently non-physical means of acquisition. A lot of the proponents of supernaturalism focus on the veridical part. In fact, these are accurate, but they don't focus too much on the apparently non-physical part. And that's where I think we really need to focus our attention. And that's where it's very difficult to prove that the individual meets the actual non-physical uh, criteria.
let me say one more thing. This phenomenon, this general dialectical or evidentiary structure occurs in all sorts of different areas of paranormal activities or the analysis of putatively paranormal phenomena. But here in this context, people make reports that turn out to be true. And those reports involve stories where it does not seem as though the individual's acquisition of the data, which turned out to be true, could have been, could have been non-physical. The acquisition had to be non-physical. That's the way it seemed. People make thousands, perhaps millions of reports like this throughout the world over time, millions and millions and millions of reports like this. Now, only a small fraction of them will turn out to be true. And they could turn out to be true just accidentally or coincidentally. I mean, if there are enough reports, then some are going to be true just coincidentally. Now, let's say you have just a million such reports. If only a tiny fraction of those turn out to be true, they'll still seem to be a lot of them. If you now tell the stories, you're not going to be highlighting the fact that this was only 0.001% of the million reports. You, you don't point that out. You just say, here, hundreds of cases where people give veridical reports of information that they couldn't have gotten physically. It turns out that you almost have to have some of those that, that are coincidentally factual. It will seem like a large number, but upon reflection, you'll see that it would be a fallacy to infer from the, those stories that in general, people do have this capacity. So that's the way I would think about those cases. So Darren Brown, the magician has this, uh, great anecdote about it. He says, there's this guy, his, his job is he works on uh, telephone cables and he repairs them late at night. And occasionally these things have a phone on them and the one that he's on starts ringing. So he answers it and it's his wife. And his wife says to him, uh, hey honey, just so you remember, when you come back in the morning, make sure that you pick up a bottle of milk. And he says to her, how did you know to call me on this pole? She says, what are you talking about? I'm calling on your new cell phone. She says, no, I'm not. And she looks and she's written down his new cell phone number on a till slip. But instead of dialing the number that she's written down, she dials the number that's on the till slip. And it happens to correspond with this poll that he's on. And they both think, this is unbelievable. This is an incredible thing. This must be, you know, supernatural. And they go on a talk show so they can talk about this. And then Darren Brown says, what are the chances that you would win the lottery? People say, well, it's millions to one. So it's incredibly, incredibly unlikely. What are the chances that someone won the lottery? 100%. Someone wins the lottery every time there's a lottery. It's just incredibly unusual when it happens to you. And I think as you point out, there's the selection bias, which is that you've got so many experiences of things that are kind of unusual. Um, and a whole bunch of them, as you say, aren't true. Someone says, I have a vision that the glasses were in the top desk drawer and they open up and they're not in the top desk drawer, they're in the guy's so discarded. And so we kind of whittle away and whittle away. And then we get to this hundred cases and that seems like a big deal, but then you sort of realize, well, it could be explained by chance. And so this is the interesting question is when we're trying to determine what to believe, there's something it's seemingly simple about the supernatural explanation, which is that my soul left my body and I was able to go and step outside of myself and see this thing. And that's pretty simple. It's an easy story to understand. Right? A lot of people grow up believing in the idea of a soul. 
versus this sort of, well, you've got to have an explanation for every single case that comes up and maybe they misheard the doctor, or maybe it was some other knowledge. And the, the principle of Occam's razor is that we must always pick the simple explanation. And it seems to my mind that the supernatural account looks simple. What's the difficulty? Well, first, the simple isn't always true. That is, Occam's razor is a pragmatic thing that other things equal. You take the simplest because it's not necessarily because it's more likely to be true, but it's easier to work with. You'd have to assume that the world itself is simple in order to justify the application of Occam's razor as a way of getting at the truth, but it seems gratuitous or unwarranted to assume that the world is simple. So that's the first thing I would say. Simplicity in itself doesn't entail truth. But also, importantly, I think you put it this way, that the supernatural explanation or interpretation seems to be simple. But when you start thinking about it, it's not so simple because now you have to assume that the mind is different from the body, that it can detach, or it, it's a soul. And now how does something non-physical have causal interaction with the physical world? How does it actually see how does it perceive if it's non-physical? And that's taking a position on the mind-body problem that's that's radical and problematic. So it's not just a kind of property dualism or a non-physicalism about mental properties, but you're actually taking a, a substance dualist position. There are these particular individuals that are non-physical and they can Flaw, as it were, travel, they can then be guided by deceased loved ones or deceased religious figures toward an otherworldly world. Now you're not just saying that, uh, now you just, you don't just have the mind-body interaction problem, but you have the problem of where do these deceased loved ones and religious figures come from? Do they exist now in some realm and they can find you and lead you? There are all these questions that come up, which make the supernatural explanation really complicated in a certain way. If it's going to be, as it were, thoroughly justified or understood. So that's the kind of thing I would say that the simplicity, first of all, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Secondly, it may be misleading. It may be simple at uh, a superficial level, but not at a deeper level. I think that's exactly right, which is that when you're picking positions, you're actually picking entirely different frameworks. And as you say, it's not just this idea of a soul that you have to buy into, which seems simple at first glance. It requires a whole bunch of other commitments about very deep questions. And you've sort of got to say, well, do I think any of that stuff follows ordinarily in my life? Do I have any evidence of spirits and supernatural realms and deities and that things happen through magic? No, a lot of what, a lot of our world can be explained through material cases. I mean, early on in our conversation, I brought up these other kinds of altered states. As you mentioned, it seems like they're quite similar in nature. And if it's the case that these experiences are brought about through near death, we can see why that would have a link with the supernatural realm because people have a belief that, well, when you die, you go to heaven. People don't think when you take a physical substance, you go to heaven. When someone takes LSD, they think they're traveling into their own minds. Um, 
and the fact that this, that the the experiences are similar that the kinds of as you say significance about it the idea of crossing over going on a journey having realizations that all those things are analogous but purely brought out through physical causes seems to my mind like a better explanation for what's going on in the near-death case good and yes i agree with that and it would be mysterious if in ordinary life we our minds our our brains or we can adequately adequately explain the interaction between the world and our minds by naturalistic and physicalistic theories but then only in certain contexts like only in the context of a near-death experience do we invoke non-natural explanations or dualism of some sort that's weird like somehow the the mind knows to detach itself from the brain when we're in a certain kind of context it seems ad hoc and arbitrary it's much it's much more sim systematic it's also simpler <laughs> to invoke uh, the notion we were just talking about but it's more systematic and less ad hoc and arbitrary not to posit that suddenly in certain contexts there's a soul that's separate from the body maybe as someone might say well the soul is identical to the body the mind is what coextensive and they and with the brain they co-occupy the same thread in space-time but just in certain special contexts that the mind or the soul separates and then after that experience they go back together what explains that separation and why why is it helpful to posit it in the first place near-death experiences are often part of terror management strategies we're afraid of death we're comforted by the idea that we will not go out of existence, that we will go to a peaceful, tranquil, beautiful, peaceful world. We'll be reunited with our loved ones. We're comforted by that thought. And it helps us to manage the, the fear and anxiety and sometimes terror that people have toward death. And so that kind of explanation appeals to people not just because of its apparent simplicity but also because of terror management that sort of hints at an evolutionary psychology approach that it might be better for people to have beliefs in an afterlife because they're comforting as you say that being able to reduce your terror might actually assist in your survival that you're a more brave person and it might be that natural selection has selected those that have this ability to have these kinds of experiences Yes. Well, I think that, that that is a plausible point. Of course, none of us knows enough about the evolutionary history of human beings and the world to, to know for sure. But at least it's what Daniel Dennett, following Rudyard Kipling's term, calls a just-so story. It, it could have been this way. And given that things could have evolved by natural selection in in a particular way shows that it's it's at least possible that the phenomenon is naturalistic the way i put it is ndes are spandrels and the idea is that we there is an evolutionary advantage to having the keep calm and carry on capacity so we keep calm in an emergency situation we actually sometimes experience time slowing down and we become stronger than we ever thought, uh, were a woman who sees her 
um, child pinned under a car can suddenly lift the car, exhibiting strength that she ordinarily wouldn't have. We have that capacity, and that's evolutionarily fully advantageous. But it's possible that coming with that, piggybacking on that, would be a near-death experience. It could, in other words, be that evolutionarily speaking, we really couldn't have the keep calm and carry on capacity without having the propensity also to have near-death experiences because the keeping calm and having a peaceful, serene, positive experience when we're unconscious isn't itself evolutionarily advantageous. Maybe it's advantageous after we awaken and regain full wakeful consciousness. When we reflect back on that, maybe it will give us courage, but in itself, it's not evolutionarily advantaged, but it can be a spandrel coming from architectural term that was then appropriated by two famous biologists and talking about just this phenomenon that certain properties are themselves evolutionarily advantageous, but coming with them unavoidably are other properties that aren't themselves directly advantageous, but come with something that is. And so that's the way I think of near-death experiences. But Mark, you suggested something that I hadn't really thought about before is that they may be thought to be in themselves advantageous, even though they don't help us navigate around or lift heavy objects because we are unconscious. But maybe when we reflect on them in the future, we'll be more confident and calmer and stronger. But it's not the case that the only way to explain these phenomena are by invoking supernaturalism. That's my overall uh, theme. And in fact, the literature is filled with the claim that the only way to explain these is that there is a God or that there is an otherworldly realm and that our souls are in contact with that realm when we have near-death experiences. And that's what makes us see that there's a good benevolent power looking after us and that we will, after we die, have still be there. That is not the only way to explain them. That's my point. And further, I would say that's not the best way to explain them. So in your book, you also talk about things that are curious, the blind and deaf having near-death experiences, where the blind have some kind of visual experience and the deaf have some kind of auditory experience. Uh, is there a way to explain that in purely physical terms? Yeah, well, at least I think in both cases, you can explain them in principle. In the case of blindness, there are certain people who are blind from birth and there are others who acquire the blindness or uh, blindness occurs later in life. And we also have to, now it's not so clear that people who are blind from birth have these visual experiences, but there are blind people, arguably there aren't, uh, but there are blind people who have not been blind from birth, who sincerely, I'm sure, report these experiences with, as it were, visual phenomenology. And so what I would do is, it's very important to distinguish the ways in which we detect facts about the external world, our perceptual apparatus, the way we get signals into our brain, and then distinguish that from the way our brain and central nervous system, as it were, processes the information. Now, it might be that 
the, the eyes and the connection between the eyes and our processing capabilities is broken. The eyes are damaged or that whole perceptual system is damaged. doesn't follow that the capability of having phenomenology as of, let's say, visual, visual phenomenology, I guess that's the best way of putting it, or an experience that has visual qualities. It doesn't tell that you can't have that anymore. It's just that you can't get the data by the eyes. But it might be that in certain contexts, the brain can be caused to have these uh, visual experiences. So I would distinguish blind from birth versus not blind from birth. And I would distinguish something wrong with the detection capabilities, like the eyes and the visual, the, the connection between the, the eyes and the brain, let's say. Distinguish that from a different kind of blindness. And if you're blind from birth, or if that processing capacity in the brain is broken, then you're not going to be able to have these experiences. But if you're not blind from birth, and the processing capability is still there, but it's just the eyes that are broken. I think you could, in principle, have these phenomena. I would say something similar about auditory phenomena. But there are, and let me, let me say further, there are clear cases of visual hallucinations, you could say, visual experiences, hallucin hallucinations, in blind people that Oliver Sacks describes in his book, Hallucinations. These people have Charles Bonnet syndrome and they're blind, and yet they report visual experiences that are quite vivid and colorful. Now, this is important in our context because it is a, it's a real natural phenomenon that occurs, but it is not appropriately explained supernaturalistically, but physicalistically. So these kinds of experiences can occur as part of the physical world, just like spiritual experiences can be induced by phenomena such as psychedelic drugs. Another, I should just mention that Oliver Sacks in his book, Hallucination, describes a report that he was given. He himself tried these hallucinogenic drugs, but this was a report that was given to him by someone whose LSD trip was strikingly similar to a near-death experience in all its, its properties. And so, again, people who write in the popular literature and sell millions and millions of copies of books, and even those more scholarly works, these people who say, supernaturalism is the only way to explain these remarkable, extraordinary, beautiful things, they're just wrong. That's not the only way. And in my view, because of the many theoretical problems, analytic problems with positing a separate mind or soul and positing interaction with the physical world, it's not the best explanation, supernaturalism. So there's a famous French film called Martyrs, and part of the, the film is about these two girls who are tortured to the brink of death. And you realize that the reason why they're being tortured in this way is to bring about these near-death experiences, that it would, the, the belief of the torturers is that they would then have the ability to communicate with the world to come and that it's a significant experience. And if there's something significant about these near-death experiences, 
should people be trying to induce them? Would be, there be some kind of value, maybe in a less brutal way than in martyrs, but maybe through some other kind of medical experimentation, should we be trying to stop someone's heart for a while so they can experience this and then, and then bring them back? Well, I think they're probably a safer and more sensible ways of achieving these states, these spiritual states. I think psychedelic drugs, although of course I, I'm not recommending them to anyone, and I myself haven't tried them, but many people now feel that they're very promising to treat PTSD and certain sorts of deep intractable depressions, depressions from terminal diagnoses. They are using LSD and also ketamine and other hallucinogenic drugs to treat these conditions. And basically I think, so Michael Pollan, the great writer, the food writer is, is also very interested in um, the history of psychedelic drugs and the contemporary treatments that in, in employ them. And he talks about ways of inducing spiritual experience through the careful uh, mentored or guided use of these, these drugs. And also, of course, prayer and meditation can be used to induce these experiences. So I would think those would all be much safer. I would worry that if someone stopped my heart, it may not start, start again. So yeah, I think that that's probably not the way to go. It reminds me of a famous case. I think Thomas Bradford was the name. His story was written up by Mary Roach, who wanted to prove that there was an afterlife. So he actually committed suicide. And the idea was that he was going to contact the researcher, his assistant, after he had died. And this would prove that there was an afterlife. Unfortunately, the results of the experiment were somewhat disappointing. And so, but it does show the, the likes someone will go for science, I suppose, or at least in order to prove that there is something out there that will calm our fears, uh, our anxieties about death. The way I look at it is sorry to be digressing a bit is supernaturalism comes from this extremely potent cocktail and the cocktail is terror management and confirmation bias. Uh, my equation would be uh, terror management plus confirmation bias equals supernaturalism. We want to assuage our worries and anxieties about what will happen to us after we die. Then we look for evidence that confirms the comforting hypothesis that we will exist in a heavenly other realm, and we dismiss the evidence that goes against us. So. And confirmation bias and terror management are incredibly powerful things. And when they interact, when they're there as a conjunction and also synergistically interact, it's very powerful. And that's one reason supernaturalism is so appealing. I have my views, though, about why a naturalistic interpretation could be deeply appealing as well. So. So it'd be remiss of me, given that Jason's not here, not to bring up his view on the topic regarding changing your mental state significantly. So he thinks that you don't physically die, but that you do die. So his view is that if you change your nature sufficiently, you cease to exist and that the, the entity that comes back is some kind of clone of you because he thinks that substances can't cease to exist and then pop back into existence. There is an end to you and that what really comes comes into existence as some new entity. He would think that the person who dies on the table to be resuscitated 
is an equivalent thing to the person who takes LSD, has a transformative experience, and then remains physically alive throughout. He'd say they died and some new entity took over. And I wondered if you had a, had a thought on that. Well, it raises difficult issues about personal identity. We distinguish between the identity of a metaphysical uh, particular, as it were, and general properties of that individual. So personality and general propensities to behavior and uh, values that you hold, those are all general properties, but, and you can change those properties and sometimes suddenly and radically and still be the same person. Now, there may be cases where uh, the changes are so significant or they're brought about in such a way as to make us think that's not the same metaphysical uh, particular or the same person in this sense that is often of interest to philosophers. So I don't know when, you know, it, it, when it's true to say that you have the same individual with different properties and when it's true to say you have a different individual, different theories, of course, of personal identity will have different answers to that question. But I don't think that when necessarily, when you undergo even very significant transformations, it follows that you're a different particular person. I write about free will, moral responsibility, death, the afterlife, but I find personal identity the most challenging, the most difficult problem. And I do think that you can have religious conversions. You can have epiphanies. A religious person can become an atheist. Uh, an atheist can be religious. A progressive or liberal can become a conservative and vice versa sometimes on the basis of experiences that make the transformation sensible and understandable, sometimes just suddenly and inexplicably. The importance of personhood is in part because we have special anticipations of what the experiences that we will have in the future as opposed to other individuals. Okay, if you tell me someone's gonna to be tortured tomorrow, then I think, oh, that's unfortunate. But if you tell me you will be tortured, then I think of it's unfortunate in a special, more vivid way. Another way in which personal identity is important is that it puts us in a certain place in the normative web, you could say. There's a whole set of obligations and duties and permissions that we have in virtue of being the particular person we have. I have to pay the mortgage that I've taken. I have to pay my credit card bills. I get to come home and open the doors of my house and come in. That's a special permission I have that even though I like you a lot, Mark, you don't have that permission. And I have the obligation to take care of my kids, which you don't have. Maybe that's a relief. Now, if I could stop being the individual that I am by under deliberately undergoing certain significant transformations, that would really be problematic because then I could get out of my obligations and duties by changing myself in this kind of way. But the puzzles are, are there. The puzzles about when I become a new person as opposed to the same person with different characteristics. What happens when there's a duplicate of me, when I'm uploaded to a computer? Those are really difficult puzzles. I don't have the answers to. So I'd like to conclude with a sort of similar case we've been talking about, another 
thing that I think people find mysterious and, and want to believe in a supernatural account of, which is that, that of children who claim to be reincarnated and they'll talk about their prior family as if it were their biological family. It's a tradition I think you find in the northern parts of Israel and southern parts of, I think it's Lebanon. There's a group there where it's sort of entrenched in the faith. And uh, often those children are then embraced into the family and treated as if they were the person who's deceased. And they seem to have special knowledge as well. So they will dislike the same kinds of foods or they'll be able to recount things that happened to the person. And then the explanation is, well, this shows that there is a soul that passes from one body to another. It's an interesting link with regards to personal identity, of course, as well, is that I think often when people think about if they were an afterlife, that they would be there for it, or that if they're being reincarnated across time, that it is them consistently, even in cases where they have no memory of the prior person. People want to still make the claim, well, it is me who is being reincarnated over and over and over again. And so there's these interesting tensions about whether we can make sense of the claim that it would be you, even if they were a soul. And in the cases where someone does claim to have memories, whether that could be explained through some alternate hypothesis. Right. I think this is a context which is dialectically and in evidential respects very similar to the reports of near-death experiencers where they are apparently non-physical but veridical experiences or reports. Sometimes the people who purport to have had a previous life or prior life, i.e. people who have been reincarnated or supposedly reincarnated, do make true reports. And there was a famous case in this country, James Leininger was the young uh, person's name, and he was five, four or five years old, and he's, he claimed to have been a fighter pilot in uh, a war, I don't know, maybe it was the Second World War, I, I forget, in a previous life, but he was able to recite particular details that seemed to be inexplicable unless he actually was in a previous life in that context. And so people invoke that example and others like it to support the idea that we've had prior lives or that we were reincarnated. People, many people take them very seriously. There's a, a group or an institute at the University of Virginia that studies paranormal phenomena. Jim Tucker, I believe, is one of the scientists and actually someone who's been associated with them for a long time. Bruce Grayson recently wrote a book called After, in which he talked about his experiences with patients who had near-death experiences. They're all part of this University of Virginia Institute, which traditionally has had a, a really uh, strong interest in paranormal phenomena. And Jim Tucker wrote about James Leininger and has an archive of thousands of stories like this, which it, it's apparently, we could say, apparently reincarnated people <laughs> who make veridical reports about their apparently previous lives. But the problem is just like it was with the near-death experiences, A, is some people are just going to make these reports and they're going to be coincidentally true, there'll be reports about something that happened and they either, there were ways that they could find out about them that are physical, that maybe don't present themselves upon first inspection of the case. But then when you dig deeper, you say, ah, this is how they found out about it. Or they just coincidentally come up with the right thing, an accurate report. 
And if enough people, if thousands or millions of people are making these reports, there will accidentally or coincidentally be some hundreds, maybe, or 50 or a hundred. And if you write up a hundred cases, it seems like a lot. Now, James Leininger is fascinating because in his case, his parents took him to an air museum when he was three years old. And he saw an exhibit about a fighter pilot. He saw an exhibit and his parents read about the individual who's being portrayed in the exhibit, a famous military leader from a previous generation. And as a three-year-old, you pick things up. You're, you're kind of maybe not fully formed cognitively, but you do pick things up. And Leininger may definitely have picked up information when he was three years old. And then later, when he was four or five, been able to reconstruct it and articulate it. And of course, a young person going to be very suggestive and not suggestible and not just suggestible, but want to please parental authority figures. And so all of these factors may have gone into Leininger's reports, many of which turned out to be true. 